Chapter Fourteen of Lady Baltimore. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lois Hill. Lady Baltimore by Owen Wister. Chapter Fourteen The Replacers. She had been strange, perceptibly strange, had Eliza La Hue. That was the most which I could make out of it. I had angered her in some manner wholly beyond my intention or understanding, and not all at one fixed point in our talk. Her irritation had come out and gone in again in spots all along the colloquy, and it had been a displeasure wholly apart from that indignation which had flashed up in her over the negro question. This, indeed, I understood well enough, and admired her for and admired still more her gallant control of it. As for the other, I gave it up. A sense of guilt, a very slight one, to be sure, dispersed my speculations when I was preparing for dinner, and Aunt Carola's postscript, upon my writing-table, reminded me that I had never asked Miss Lehue about the bombos. Well, the bombos could keep, and I descended to dinner a little late, as too often, to feel instantly in the air that they had been talking about me. I doubt if any company in the world, from the Greeks down through Machiavelli to the present moment, has ever been of a subtlety adequate to conceal from an observant person entering a room the fact that he has been the subject of their conversation. This company, at any rate, did not conceal it from me. Not even when the up-country bride astutely greeted me with, "'Why, we were just speaking of you!' we were just saying it would be a perfect shame if you missed those flowers at live oaks and at this various of the guests assured me that another storm would finish them upon which i assured every one that to-morrow should see me embark upon the live oaks excursion boat knowing quite well in my heart that some decidedly different question concerning me had been hastily dropped upon my appearance at the door it poked up its little concealed head did this question when the bride said later to me with immense archness, "'How any gentleman can help falling just dayed in love with that lovely young girl at the exchange, I don't see.' "'But I haven't helped it,' I immediately exclaimed. "'Oh!' declared the bride with unerring perception. "'That just shows he hasn't been smitten at all. Well, I'd be ashamed if I was a single gentleman.' and while I brought forth additional phrases concerning the distracted state of my heart, she looked at me with large, limpid eyes. "'Anybody could tell you're not afraid of a rival,' was her resulting comment, upon which several of the etceteras laughed more than seemed to me appropriate. I left them all free again to say what they pleased, for John Mayrant called for me to go upon our walk while we were still seated at table, and at table they remained after I had excused myself.' The bruise over John's left eye was fading out, but traces of his spiritual battle were deepening. During the visit which he had paid, under compulsion, I am sure, to Juno at our boarding-house in company with Miss Josephine St. Michael, his recent financial triumph at the bedside had filled his face with diabolic elation as he confronted his victim's enraged but checkmated aunt when to the thinly-veiled venom of her inquiry as to a bridegroom's health he had retorted with venom as thinly-veiled that he was feeling better that night than for many weeks he had looked better too 
the ladies had exclaimed after his departure what a handsome young man he was and juno had remarked how fervently she trusted that marriage might cure him of his deplorable tendencies but to-day his vitality had sagged off beneath the weight of his preoccupation it looked to me as if by a day or two more the boy's face might be grown haggard whether by intention or as is more likely by the perfectly natural and spontaneous working of his nature he speedily made it plain to me that our relation our acquaintance had progressed to a stage more friendly and confidential he did not reveal this by imparting any confidence to me far from it it was his silence that indicated the ease he had come to feel in my company upon our last memorable interview he had embarked at once upon a hasty yet evidently predetermined course of talk because he feared that i might touch upon subjects which he wished excluded from all discussion between us to-day he embarked upon nothing made no conventional effort of any sort but walked beside me content with my mere society if it should happen that either of us found a thought worth expressing aloud good and if this should not happen why good also and so we walked mutely and agreeably together for a long while the thought which was growing clear in my mind and which was decidedly worthy of expression was also unluckily one which his new reliance upon my discretion completely forbade my uttering in even the most shadowy manner but it was a conviction which miss josephine st michael should have been quick to force upon him for his good quite apart from selfish reasons he had no right to marry a girl whom he had ceased to care for the code which held a gentleman to his plighted troth in such a case did more injury to the lady than any jilting could possibly do never until now had i thought this out so lucidly and i was determined that time and my own tact should assuredly help me find a way to say it to him if he continued in his present course daddy ben says you can't be a real northerner this was his first observation and i think that we must have walked a mile before he made it because i pounded a negro of course he retains your southern antebellum mythical notion of northerners all of us willing to have them marry our sisters well there's a lady at our boarding-house who says you are a real gambler the impish look came curling round his lips but for a moment only and it was gone that shook daddy ben up a good deal having his grandson do it do you mean oh he's used to his grandson grandsons in that race might just as well be dogs for all they know or care about their progenitors yet daddy ben spent his savings on educating charles coatsworth and two more but not one of them will give the old man a house to-day if ever i have a home john stopped himself and our silence was no longer easy our unspoken thoughts looked out of our eyes so that they could not meet yet no one unless directly invited by him had the right to say to him what i was thinking except some near relative therefore to relieve this silence which had ceased to be agreeable i talked about daddy ben and his grandsons and negro voting and the huge lie of equality which our lips vociferate and our lives daily disprove this took us comfortably away from weddings and cakes into the subject of lynching my violent condemnation of which surprised him for our discussion had led us over a wide field and one fertile in well-known disputes of the evergreen sort conducted by the north mostly with more theory than experience and by the south mostly with more heat than light whereas between john and me 
I may say that our amiability was surpassed only by our intelligence. Each allowed for the other's standpoint, and both met in many views. He would have voted against the last national democratic ticket, but for the Republican upholding of Negro equality, while I assured him that such stupid and criminal upholding was on the wane. He informed me that he did not believe the pure-blooded African would ever be capable of taking the intellectual side of the white man's civilization, and I informed him that we must patiently face this probability and teach the African whatever he could profitably learn and no more, and each of us agreed with the other. I think that we were at one, save for the fact that I was, after all, a northerner, and that is a blemish which nobody in Kingsport can quite get over. John, therefore, was unprepared for my wholesale denunciation of lynching. "'With your clear view of the negro,' he explained. "'My dear man, it's my clear view of the white. It's the white, the American citizen, the hope of humanity, as he enjoys being called, who, after our English-speaking race has abolished public executions, degenerates back to the Stone Age. It's upon him that lynching works the true injury.' "'They're nothing but animals,' he muttered. "'Would you treat an animal in that way?' I inquired. He persisted. "'You'd do it yourself if you had to suffer from them.' "'Very probably. Is that an answer? What I'd never do would be to make a show, an entertainment, a circus out of it, run excursion trains to see it. Come, should you like your sister to buy tickets for a lynching?' This brought him up rather short. "'I should never take part myself.' he presently stated, unless it were immediate personal vengeance. "'Few brothers or husbands would blame you,' I returned. "'It would be hard to wait for the law. But let no community which treats it as a public spectacle presume to call itself civilized.' He gave a perplexed smile, shaking his head over it. "'Sometimes I think civilization costs—' "'Civilization costs all you've got,' I cried. "'More than I've got!' he declared. I'm mortal tired of civilization. Ah, yes, what male creature is not, and neither of us will live quite long enough to see the smash-up of our own. Aren't you sometimes inconsistent, he inquired, laughing. I hope so, I returned. Consistency is a form of death. The dead are the only perfectly consistent people. And sometimes you sound like a socialist, he pursued, still laughing. Never! I shouted, don't class me with those untrained puppies of thought, and you'll generally observe, I added, that the more nobly a socialist vaporizes about the rights of humanity, the more wives and children he has abandoned penniless along the trail of his life. He was livelier than ever at this. What date have you fixed for the smash-up of our present civilization? Why fix dates? Is it not diversion enough to watch, and step handsomely through one's own part, with always a good sleeve to laugh in? Pensiveness returned upon him. I shall be able to step through my own part, I think. He paused, and I was wondering secretly, does that include the wedding? When he continued, what's there to laugh at? Why, our imperishable selves. For instance, we swear by universal suffrage. Well, sow's ears are an invaluable thing in their place, on the head of the animal, but send them to make your laws, and what happens? Bribery, naturally. The silk purse buys the sow's ear. We swear by Christianity, but dishonesty is our present religion. 
that little phrase in god we trust is about as true as the silver dollar it's stamped on worth some thirty-nine cents we get awfully serious about whether or no good can come of evil when every skyscraping thief of finance is helping hospitals with one hand while the other's in my pocket and good and evil attend each other lead to each other are such siamese twins that if separated they would both die we make phrases about peace pity and brotherhood while every nation stands prepared for shipwreck and for the sinking plank to which two are clinging and the stronger pushes the weaker into the flood and thus floats safe why the old apple of wisdom which adam and eve swallowed and thus lost their innocence was a gentle nursery drug compared with the new apple of competition which as soon as chewed instantly transforms the heart into a second brain but why worry when nothing is final haven't you and i for instance lamented the present rottenness of smart society why when kings by the name of george sat on the throne of england society was just as drunken just as dissolute when a decent queen came and society behaved itself and now here we come round again to the georges only with the name changed there's nothing final so when things are as you don't like them remember that and bear them and when they're as you do like them remember it and make the most of them and keep a good sleeve handy have you got any creed at all he demanded certainly but i don't live up to it that's not expected may i ask what it is it's in latin well i can probably bear it aunt eliza had a classical tutor for me i always relish a chance to recite my favorite poet and i began accordingly laetus in praesens animus quod ultra est oderet curare et i know that one he exclaimed interrupting me the tutor made me put it into english verse i had the severest sort of a time i ran away from it twice to a deer hunt and he in his turn recited who hails each present hour with zest hates fretting what may be the rest makes bitter sweet with lazy jest naught is in every portion blessed i complimented him in spite of my slight annoyance at being deprived by him of the chance to declaim latin poetry which is an exercise that i approve and enjoy but of course to go on with it after he had intervened with his translation would have been flat you have written good english and very close to the latin too i told him particularly in the last line and i picked up from the bridge which we were crossing an oyster shell and sent it skimming over the smooth water that stretched between the low shores wide blue and vacant i suppose you wonder why we call this the new bridge he remarked i did wonder when i first came i replied he smiled you're getting used to us this long structure wore in truth no appearance of yesterday it was newer than the new bridge which it had replaced some fifteen years ago and which for forty years had borne the same title spanning the broad river upon a legion of piles this wooden causeway lies low against the face of the water joining the town with a serene and pensive country of pines and live oaks and level opens where glimpses of cabin and plantation serve to increase the silence and the soft mysterious loneliness into this the road from the bridge goes straight and among the purple vagueness gently dissolves away we watched a low deep-laden boat sliding down toward the draw across which we made our way and drew near the further end of the bridge the straight avenue of the road in front of us took my eyes down its quiet vista 
until they were fixed suddenly by an alien object, a growing dot, accompanied by dust, whence came the small distorted honks of an automobile. These fat, importunate sounds redoubled as the machine rushed toward the bridge, growing up to its full staring brazen dimensions. Six or seven figures sat in it, all of the same dusty shrouded likeness, their big glass eyes and their masked mouths suggesting some fabled unearthly race, a family of replete and bilious ogres, so that as they flew honking by us I called out to John, Behold the yellow rich! and then remembered that his hortense probably sat among them. The hogs redoubled, and returned to see that the drawbridge had no thought of waiting for them. We also saw a bewildered curly-white dog and a young girl, who called despairingly to him as he disappeared beneath the automobile. The engine of murder could not, as is usual, proceed upon its way, honking, for the drawbridge was visibly swinging open to admit the passage of the boat. When John and I had run back near enough to become ourselves a part of the incident, the white dog lay still behind the stationary automobile, whose passengers were craning their muffled necks and glass eyes to see what they had done, while one of their number had got out and was stooping to examine if the machine had sustained any injuries. The young girl with a face of anguish was calling the dog's name as she hastened toward him, and her voice aroused him. He lifted his head got on his legs and walked over to her, which action on his part brought from the automobile a penetrating female voice. Well, he's in better luck than that Savannah dog. But General was not in luck. He lay quietly down at the feet of his mistress, and we soon knew that life had passed from his faithful body. The first stroke of grief dealt her in such cruel and sudden form, overbore the poor girl's pride and reserve, she made no attempt to remember or heed surroundings, but kneeling and placing her arms about the neck of her dead servant, she spoke piteously aloud, "'And I raised him! I raised him from a puppy!' The female voice, at this, addressed the traveller who was examining the automobile. "'Charlie, a five or a ten-spot is what her feelings need.' The obedient and munificent Charlie straightened up from his stooping among the mechanical entrails, dexterously produced money, and advanced with the selected bill held out politely in his hand, while the glass eyes and the masks peered down upon the performance. Eliza Lahue had perceived none of this, for she was intent upon General, nor had John Mayrant, who had approached her with the purpose of coming to her aid, but when Charlie, quite at hand, began to speak words which were instantly obliterated from my memory by what happened, the young girl realized his intention and straightened stiffly, while John, with the rapidity of light, snatched the extended bill from Charlie's hand, and tearing it in four pieces, threw it in his face. A foreign voice cackled from the automobile. Ooh la la! Il est du panache! But Charlie now disclosed himself to be a true man of the world, and the financial world, by picking the pieces out of the mud and while he wiped them and enclosed them in his handkerchief, and with perfect dignity returned them to his pocket, he remarked simply, with a shrug, "'As you please.' His accent also was ever so little foreign, that New York downtown foreign of the second generation, which stamps so many of our bankers. The female now leaned from her seat, and with the tone of setting the whole thing right, explained, "'We had no idea it was a lady.' "'Doubtless you're not accustomed to their appearance,' said John to Charlie. "'I don't know what Charlie would have done about this, 
for while the completely foreign voice was delightedly whispering, Toujours les panaches, a new, deep, and altogether different female voice exclaimed, Why, John, it's you! So that was Hortense, then. That rich and quiet utterance was hers, a schooled and studied management of speech. I found myself surprised, and I knew directly why. That word of one of the old ladies, I consider that she looks like a steel wasp, had implanted in me some definite anticipations, to which the voice certainly did not correspond. How fervently I desired that she would lift her thick veil, while John, with hat in hand, was greeting her, and being presented to her companions. Why she had not spoken to John sooner was, of course, a recondite question, and beyond my power to determine with merely the given situation to guide me. Hadn't she recognized him before? Had her thick veil and his position, and the general slight flurry of the misadventure, intercepted recognition until she heard his voice when he addressed Charlie? Or had she known her lover at once, and rapidly decided that the moment was an unpropitious one for a first meeting after absence, and that she would pass on to King's Port unrevealed, but then had found this plan become impossible through the collision between Charlie and John? It was not until certain incidents of the days following brought Miss Rieppe's nature a good deal further home to me, that a third interpretation of her delay in speaking to John dawned upon my mind, and I was also made aware how a woman's understanding of the words steel wasp, when applied by her to one of her own sex, may differ widely from a man's understanding of them, and that Miss Rieppe, through her thick veil, saw from her seat in the automobile something which my own unencumbered vision had by no means detected. But now, here on the bridge, even her outward appearance was as shrouded as her inward qualities, save such as might be audible in that voice, as her skilful, well-placed speeches to one and the other of the company tied it over, and carried off into ease this uneasy moment. All men, at such a voice, have pricked up their ears since the beginning. There was much woman in it. Each slow, schooled syllable called its challenge to the questing man. But I got no chance to look in the eye that went with that voice. She took all the advantages which her veil gave her and how well she used them I was to learn later. In the general smoothing-out process, which she was so capably effecting, her attention was about to reach me, when my name was suddenly called out from behind her. It was Beverly Rogers, that accomplished and inveterate bachelor of fashion. Ten years before, when I had seen much of him, he had been more particular in his company, frequently declaring in his genial, irresponsible way that New York society was going to the devil but many tempting dances on the land, and cruises on the water, had taken him deep among our lower classes, that have boiled up from the bottom with their millions, and besides there would be nothing to marvel at in Beverly's presence in any company that should include Hortense Rieppe, if she carried out the promise of her voice. Beverly was his customary, charming, effusive self, coming out of the automobile to me with his, "'By Jove, old man!' and his, "'Who'd have thought it, old fellow?' and sprinkling urbane little drops of jocosity over us collectively, as the garden water-turning apparatus sprinkles a lawn. His knowing me, and the way he brought it out, and even the tumbling into the road of a few wraps and shadows of travel as he descended from the automobile, and the necessity of picking these up and handing them back with delightful little jocular apologies such as, "'By Jove, what a lout I am!' All this helped the meeting on prodigiously, and got us gratefully away from the disconcerting incident of the torn money. 
Charlie was helpful, too. You would never have supposed from the polite small talk which he was now offering to John Mayrant that he had within some three minutes received the equivalent of a slap across the eyes from that youth, and carried the soiled consequences in his pocket. And such a thing is it to be a true man of the world of finance, that upon the arrival now of a second automobile, also his property, and containing a set of maids and valets, and also some live dogs sitting up, covered with glass eyes and wrappings like their owners, munificent Charlie at once offered the dead dog and his mistress a place in it, and begged she would let it take her wherever she wished to go. Everybody exclaimed copiously and condolingly over the unfortunate occurrence. What a fine animal he was, to be sure! What breed was he? Of course he wasn't used to automobiles. Was it quite certain that he was dead? Quel dommage! And Charlie would be so happy to replace him. And how was Eliza La Hue bearing herself amid these murmurously chattered infelicities? She was listening with composure to the murmurs of Hortense Rieppe, more felicitous, no doubt. Miss Rieppe, through her veil, was particularly devoting herself to Miss Lathue. I could not hear what she said. The little chorus of condolence and suggestion intercepted all save her tone, and that, indeed, coherently sustained its measured cadence through the texture of fragments uttered by Charlie and the others. Eliza Lahue had now got herself altogether in hand, and, saving her pale cheeks, no sign betrayed that the young girl's feelings had been so recently too strong for her. To these strangers, ignorant of her usual manner, her present strange quietness may very well have been accepted as her habit. "'Thank you,' she replied to munificent Charlie's offer that she would use his second automobile. She managed to make her polite words cut like a scythe. "'I should crowd it.' "'But they shall get out and walk. It will be good for them,' said Charlie, indicating the valets and maids, and possibly the dogs, too. Beverly Rogers did much better than Charlie.' With a charming gesture and bow, he offered his own seat in the first automobile. "'I am going to walk in any case,' he assured her. "'One gentleman among them,' I heard John Mayrant mutter behind me. Miss Lahue declined. The chorus urged. But Beverly, who was indeed a gentleman every inch of him, shook his head imperceptibly at Charlie, and while the little exclamations, "'Do come! So much more comfortable! So nice to see more of you!' dropped away, Miss Lahue had settled her problem quite simply for herself. A little procession of vehicles, townward bound, had gathered on the bridge, waiting until the closing of the draw should allow them to continue upon their way. From these most of the occupants had descended, and were staring with avidity at us all. The great glass eyes and the great refulgent cars held them in timidity and fascination, and the poor lifeless white body of General stretched beside the way, heightened the hypnotic mystery. One or two of the boldest had touched him, and found no outward injury upon him, and this had sent their eyes back to the automobile with increased awe. Eliza Lahue summoned one of the onlookers, an old negro. At some word she said to him, he hurried back and returned, leading his horse and empty cart, and General was lifted into this. The girl took her seat beside the old driver. No, she said to John Mayrant, certainly not. I wondered at the needless severity with which she declined his offer to accompany her and help her. He stood by the wheel of the cart, looking up at her and protesting, and I joined him. "'Thank you,' she returned. "'I need no one. You will both oblige me by saying no more about it.' "'John,' 
It was the slow, well-calculated utterance of Hortense Rieppe. Did I hear in it the caressing note of love? John turned. The draw had swung to. The mast and sail of the vessel were separating away from the bridge with a stealthy motion. Men with iron bars were at work fastening the draw secure, and horses' hoofs knocked nervously upon the wooden flooring as the internal churning of the automobiles burst upon their innocent ears. John, if Mr. Rogers is really not going with us— Thus Hortense, and at that Miss Lahue. Why do you keep them waiting? There was no caress in that note. It was polished granite. He looked up at her in her high seat by the extremely dilapidated negro, and then he walked forward and took his place beside his veiled fiancée among the glass eyes. A hiss of sharp noise spurted from the automobiles, horses danced, and then, smoothly, the two huge engines were gone, with their cargo of large, distorted shapes, leaving behind them, quite as our present epoch will leave behind it, a trail of power, of ingenuity, of ruthlessness, and a bad smell. "'Hold hard, old boy,' chuckled Beverly, to whom I communicated this sentiment. "'How do you know the stink of one generation does not become the perfume of the next? Beverly, when he troubled to put a thing at all, which was seldom, for he kept his quite good brains well-nigh perpetually turned out to grass, or rather to grass widows, always put it well, and with a bracing vocabulary. "'Hello!' he now exclaimed, and walked out into the middle of the roadway, where he picked up a parasol. Kitty will be in a jolly old stew, none of its expensive bones broken, however. And then he hailed me by a name of our youth. What are you doing down here, you old sour-belly? Watching you sun yourself on the fat cushions of the yellow rich. Oh, shucks, old man, they're not so yellow. Charlie strikes me as yellower than his own gold. Charlie's not a bad little sort. Of course he needs coaching a bit here and there. Just now, for instance, when he didn't see that that girl wouldn't think of riding in the machine that had just killed her dog. By Jove, give that girl a year in civilization, and she'd do. Who was the young fire-eater? Fire-eater? He's a lot more decent than you or I. But that's saying so little, dear boy. Seriously, Beverly. Oh, hang it with your seriously. Well, then, seriously. Melodrama was the correct ticket and all that in 1840, but we've outgrown it. It's devilish demode to chuck things in people's faces. I'm not sorry John Mayrant did it. I brought out his name with due emphasis. All the same, Beverly was beginning when the automobile returned rapidly upon us, and, guessing the cause of this, he waved the parasol. Charlie descended to get it, an unnecessary act, prompted, I suppose, by the sudden relief of finding that it was not lost. He made his thanks marked. It is my sister's, he concluded to me, by way of explanation, in his slightly foreign accent. It is not much, but it has got some stones and things in the handle. We were favored with the bow from the veiled Hortense, shrill thanks from Kitty, and the car turning again left us in a moment. You've got a Frenchman along, I said. Little Gaza, Beverly returned, Italian, though from his morals you'd never guess he wasn't Parisian. Great people in Rome hereditary right to do something in the presence of the Pope, or not to do it, I forget which. Not a bit of a bad little sort, Gaza. He has just sold a lot of old furniture, Renaissance, Lorenzo de Borgia, that sort of jolly old truck, to Bohm, you know. I didn't know. Oh, yes, you do, old boy. Harry Bohm, of Bone and Cone. 
everybody knows bohm and we'll all be knowing cone by next year gaza has sold him a lot of furniture too bohm's from pittsfield or south lee or east canaan or west stockbridge or some of those other back-country cider presses that squirt some of the hardest propositions into wall street he's just back from buying a railroad and four or five mines in mexico bohm represents christianity in the firm at newport they call him the military attache to jerusalem he's the big chap that sat behind me in the car he'll marry kitty as soon as she can get her divorce bohm's a jolly old sort and i tell you you old sourbelly you're letting this southern moss grow over you a bit hey what yellow rich isn't half bad and i'll say it myself and pretend it's mine but hang it old man their children won't be worse than lemon-colored and the grandchildren will be white just in time i exclaimed to take a back seat with their evaporated fortunes beverly chuckled well if they do evaporate there will be new ones now don't walk along making mayflower eyes at me i'm no puritan and my people have had a front seat since pretty early in the game which i'm holding on to you know and by jove old man i tell you if you wish to hold on nowadays you can't be drawing lines if you don't want to see yourself jolly well replaced you must fall in with the replacers our blooming old republic is merely the quickest process of endless replacing yet discovered and you take my tip and back the replacers that's where miss rieppe for all her kingsport traditions shows sense i turned square on him then she has broken it broken what her engagement to john mayrant you mean to say that you didn't see here old man seriously the fire-eater i was so very much bewildered that i merely stared at beverly rogers of course i might have known that miss rieppe would not feel the need of announcing to her rich northern friends an engagement which she had fallen into the habit of postponing but beverly had a better right to be taken aback i suppose you must have some reason for your remark he said you don't mean that you're engaged to her i shot out me with my poor little fifteen thousand a year consider dear boy oh no we're merely playing at it she and i she's a good player but charlie he is i shouted i don't know old man and i don't think he knows yet beverly said i let me tell you and i told him after he had got himself adjusted to the novelty of it he began to take it with a series of thoughtful chuckles into these i dropped with where's her father anyhow i began to feel fantastically that she mightn't have a father he stopped in savannah beverly answered he's coming over by the train kitty charlie's sister mrs bleecker did the chaperoning for us very expertly i should guess i said perfectly invisibly said beverly and he returned to his thoughts and his chuckles after all it's simple he presently remarked doesn't that depend on what she's here for oh to break it why come for that he took another turn among his cogitations i took a number of turns among my own but it was merely walking round and round in a circle when will she announce it then he demanded ah i murmured you said she was a good player but a fire-eater he resumed for her oh hang it she'll let him go then why hasn't she he hesitated well of course her game could be spoiled by his speech died away into more cogitation and i had to ask him what he meant by love getting into it somewhere we walked on through worship street which we had reached some while since and the chief features of which i mechanically pointed out to him 
"'Jolly old church, that,' said Beverly, as we reached my favorite corner and brick wall. "'Well, I'll not announce it,' he murmured gallantly. "'My dear man,' I said, "'King's Port will do all the announcing for you to-morrow.'" End of chapter 14 Recording by Lois Hill, Kamii, Idaho